Well, we're going to continue on our study of the book of John in the 13th chapter. I'm going to start reading in verse 21, and I'm going to read through verse 33. Excuse me, 32. John 13, 21 through 32. That can be found on page 900 of those blue pew Bibles that are in front of you. You can listen, and I'll remind you of the page number in just a minute. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask him of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. For Easter, I turned to the Gospels, and I read the story of the resurrection on my back porch by myself. My wife and daughter got to come to church, and Nathan and I complained on our own. So Nathan got to say it last week. I get to say it this week. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Come on, there's seven Sundays of Easter leading all the way up to Pentecost. Maybe seven is the perfect number that we need to recite that Christ is risen so that we might come to believe it, that it might actually change the way that we live our lives, that we might be women and men infected with the hope of resurrection. Wouldn't that be great? Instead of being infected with COVID, it would be great to be infected with the hope of resurrection. We wouldn't be wearing these masks but we would be telling everybody that we know that we're going to live forever. And therefore, the life that we live here, that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, that we might give our lives away, that we might be women and men who are free and free indeed. It is so good to be back with you. Let's come before the Lord and let's pray. Father, we bow before you and we bow before your word. As Nathan often says to us, 
we don't understand your word until we stand under your word. And Father, we confess to you that it is against our nature, though it is not against our creation. It is against our sinful nature to want to stand under your word. We agree with our culture. We don't want to be told what to do. And yet, Jesus, we see how you have slowed us down that we might understand the beauty and the freedom of our God in loving broken, selfish, greedy, sinful, sensual people like us. Father, I am alive with hope as Francesca prayed that we would see you bring women and men from the communities in which we live into your church this season. Would you please do it? Father, we are your people and we struggle to know how to engage the world in which we live. Our influence feels so little. And so, Father, we struggle to believe that when we pray for the wars that are tearing apart, not just Ukraine and Russia, but many wars throughout the world, communities being ripped apart, your church and fellow Christians, sisters and brothers who worship you today, fearing for their lives, we, we throw up our hands and we say, Lord, you're the one that taught us to pray your kingdom come and your will be done. You're the one that says that you break the bow and you shatter the spear and you burn the chariots with fire. And that we're to be still and to know that you are God. And so, Father, give us a desire to pray for the nations that your name would be made great. But, Father, don't let us be hypocrites. Give us the desire to pray for our neighbors, not just the nations, and to give our lives away. To seek to know where you have called us. For that to be the case, Jesus, you're going to have to call us. And you're going to have to continue over and over to set us free from the sin that so easily entangles us so that we might run the race that has been set before us. It's what we long to do in the best of the moments. In the worst of the moments, well, we don't want to pray, Father, about the worst of the moments. But Jesus, we long to hear your voice. Lord Jesus, today this sermon is about your voice and the power of your voice. And so, Father, we pray for Mita and Ben, for Mac and Louisa. We pray for David and Harmony and Miles, Nora and Lucy, Chrissy, Vasily, Ian and Deb, Henry, Lenora, Iris, Abel, and Avery. We pray that these sheep who belong to you would hear your voice and would follow you. And Lord Jesus, in your kindness, would the same be said of each of us. We will be still 
and know that you are God. And we praise you, Jesus, that you are not still. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, we're in the Easter reference of Scripture. Uh, We've celebrated Christ rising from the dead, and you're like, can't we just jump ahead? Why can't we get to chapter 21? We'll get there, but we won't get there till next year. So, Yosef, you're going to have to come back and visit us, all right? And you're going to get 21 next year, but you won't get it this year. Uh, We are here in these chapters still, and it's good that we are, because sometimes Easter goes by so quickly that we can't take in everything that's happening within the week of Easter, right? And, and really, from chapter 11 through chapter 13, we've only got six days from when the time that Mary washes the feet of Jesus to the time that Judas, as his feet are being washed, turns to betray Christ. That's six days, right? And in the six days of Easter, we move through that so quickly that we often don't have time to settle in and go, hey, what are we supposed to learn here? But there's a lot to be learned here. It's time for us to consider a little bit more deeply Easter. It's time for us to think about John 13. It's time for us to think about this last of the separation stories of the Gospel of John. This is the last one. They started in John 6. Do you remember that in John 6 where Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have nothing to do with me? And right then, people who had been following Jesus because he had been doing miracles and healing folks and giving sight to the blind, and they thought, hallelujah, a king has come who can set us free. They heard that guy, and they're like, we want nothing to do with him, and they turn and they walk away. And ever since then, we have seen people leaving Christ. That's not all we've seen. We've seen people coming to Christ. We've seen blind men who have seen. We have seen lame who have walked. We have seen women whose identity have been restored. But make no bones about it. John is about separation. What do you believe about Jesus? And here we have the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. We typically gloss over this, don't we? We think about Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. It had to happen, but somebody, tough luck to be Judas. We often take Judas's name in vain. Well, I, I, I don't think I've ever take, taken Judas's name in vain. Mita and I are watching this crazy documentary on Masterpiece Theater, and their curse word or their word of exclamation is Judas. It sounds really funny the first time you hear somebody go, oh, Judas. And, and, but then by, you know, season three or whatever we're in now, it's kind of normal. And you're like, that's weird. But I started thinking about it. I was like, that's kind of how I think of Judas, you know, honestly. Or we go into this idea of betrayal, and one of the things we start to think about is like, Jesus was betrayed. I've been betrayed too. I've been deeply betrayed. I sing songs by someone who has betrayed me. And I don't want to move too quickly away from that because we each sit in these pews and we bear the wounds of women and men who have been betrayed. And it's real and it's true. But I'm pretty sure that that's not the main reason why we are drawn to Judas by the gospel writer John here. But rather, I want us to consider Judas particularly because his actions parallel the actions of all the disciples, don't they? Judas stands out as the one who uniquely betrayed Christ. 
But if we're going to define betrayal the way I want to do it today, exposing someone by treacherously siding with one's enemy or the enemy as every disciple left Jesus and ran. Maybe even the writer Mark as the rich young man whose robe was grabbed in the garden of Gethsemane and he ran away naked. The betrayal of Judas parallels the lives of the disciples. Mita loves to play the game, and I've told you this before, that when she watches crime scenes or crime movies, she sits back and she goes, if I had been the criminal, I'd have done it this way and not been caught. But Judas reminds us that we do it like Judas. And so I've asked us to consider this to be called the anatomy of betrayal. It has three parts to it, the anatomy of betrayal. I want you to see the coldness of Judas. I want you to see the callousness of Judas. And I want you to see the calculation of Judas. Those are the three parts. I'd like to do a series on Judas, actually. My favorite TV show in the recent past has been Breaking Bad, not because the majority of it is redemptive, but because the majority of it is true. When human beings turn to evil to gain control and become the very evil that they tried to control, there's a deep ringing of truth there. Some friends of mine told me about this show called The Anatomy of a Scandal. I read about it, and I'm not sure it's for me. It's pretty rough. But it is a, 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 a horrifying reality of what happens when sexual interaction happens between human beings on the definition of consent. Completely not what Scripture talks about. And, and the ideas that result are deeply true and unsettling. And today I want you to think with me about this anatomy of betrayal. Because in this anatomy of betrayal in Judas's life, we see both Judas's heart revealed, but in turn ours. So look at the first one with me. Again, there are three of these. The three are coldness, callousness, and calculatedness, if you can say it that way. Calculation might be the better way of saying it. The definition of betrayal that we are going to use is this. To expose someone by treacherously siding with an enemy or with the enemy for us. I want you to see first the coldness of Judas. And to do that, we need to turn back just a few verses in chapter 13, but verses 1 through 5. Let me read them to you one more time. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot's son, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. 
He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We so quickly moved to Peter, as was right for Nathan to do last week's sermon. But have you ever thought about what it was like for Judas to have his feet washed by Jesus? I mean, he was there. When we talk about coldness, you go, I don't know, Bradley. I mean, am I cold? How many times has somebody offered you something and you say, I I don't accept it? Just don't, I don't accept it. The story that unfolds for us is that Jesus, in his knowledge of his union with God, that he had come from God and that he was returning to God, knowing that, who he was, who he is, stripped himself, took the form of a slave, as Nathan taught us, and began to wash his disciples' feet. Has anybody ever washed your feet? Have you needed that? The intimacy of having your feet held by another The exposure of that, the kindness of that. You go, Bradley, is is that really what it was like? Look at Peter's response. Lord, you're not going to do that. No, 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 no. Supposes you too much, me too much. No, no, no. And then Jesus says, look, Peter, if I don't do it and you don't have anything to do with me, then wash my head and my hands and my feet. Peter knew the response of being exposed, the intimacy, the humility. What about Judas? What did Judas do? Judas didn't do anything. He could have cried out as Jesus was washing him, You have no idea how dirty I am. Jesus, it wasn't until I saw you at my feet washing me that I realized my heart was bent on betrayal against you. Jesus, would you forgive me? Jesus moved toward Judas as Judas, we're told in verse 2, had already contemplated betraying him. And instead of speaking out, Judas was silent. Six days ago, Judas had watched as Mary broke open the flask and washed the feet of Jesus and anointed him with perfume. And with indignation, we're told, with this idea of anger that just wasn't right, Judas was still frustrated. How many times have you said, I just do not accept what you're giving me? When have you held on to your indignation? When have you thought the worst of someone moving toward you? 
When have you ignored the commands of God? You've just said, I'm not going to think about those commands. The commands that God gives about marriage, about human sexuality, about laying our lives down. When have you said, nope, 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 I don't accept it. Jesus' movement in washing the feet of his disciples, and in this context, with Judas being at the beginning of it and the end of it, highlights what he's doing with Judas in drawing out his coldness. But there's a second thing, his callousness. Look at verses 21 to 25 with me. Verses 21 to 25, the ones we've just said, it says to us in just verse 21, after saying these things, and Nathan preached last week, you can go back and listen to it, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Where have we seen that before? Tomb of Lazarus, right? The weeping of Mary and of all the people that were around Lazarus. This, the, 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 the gravity of death, right? And human beings crushing weight of bearing death that destroys us. We understand that Jesus' heart was troubled there. But here we're told that it was troubled. The same word. It's this visible recognition of anguish. The shaking, the, the agony. And Jesus says with the same language that he's used before, truly, truly, I say, one of you is going to betray me. What does callousness look like? Callousness says this. I don't care. I don't care. Why does that stand out? Because immediately when Peter saw Jesus troubled, what did he do? Peter gets a hold of John who's sitting right next to Jesus on his left. And he says, ask, ask who is you? Emotions. And he says, who is it? And John goes, and Peter goes, and Peter goes, okay. And he leans back because Jesus is behind him. And he goes, Lord, who is it? You see that Peter and John cared. They heard. Some of the commentators wonder how loud this table was. There are 12 guys laying around a table. And, and they really are lounging. Their feet are out behind them. That's why washing of the feet works. Otherwise, if it was Michelangelo, it wouldn't work. You can't get underneath his table. But they're lounging back. They're long. It's, it's a big room. But Peter and John who hear them engage with Jesus is troubling. Them. What's going on? What's going on? What does Judas do? Nothing. Nothing. When have you decided that you don't care whether the sin that you entertain in silence, grieves the heart of God. 
When have we decided that the grief of our Creator is nothing to us? It doesn't matter. What about Christ's body? When have we seen the grief of others? Others in anguish and responded. I just don't care. You go, Bradley, what do you want Judas to do? I think the very thing Jesus wants Judas to do. You're right, Jesus. One of us is, and it's me. It's me. I've been thinking about it. I was tempted by the devil. And I was mad at you six days ago. One week ago, I was mad, and it's me. When you say one of us, do you see the spotlight getting tighter and tighter? What should Judas have done? It's me. Jesus, my grieving is grieving. My, my, my temptation to betray you grieves you. I see that. It's me. Would you please forgive me? But Judas is silent. Coldness and callousness is not the only thing that we see of Judas. The last that we see is a calculatedness. And I want to show you, because I think it's a big deal for you and for me. In verses 26 through 30, Jesus answers John's question. I'm assuming that the disciple that Jesus loved is John. I could... If you want to go out to lunch, I'll tell you why I think that. Um, here's the first place that we've heard it, and you'll see it at the end of the Gospel of John as well. But John asks Jesus, who is it? And Jesus answers John. Now, his answer is interesting because after he does the action that he describes, it says that the disciples were really confused, like, why did he do what he did? So again, the question is, did everybody hear him, or did they not hear him? Or had Jesus been talking about death and betrayal so much that they were just kind of confused? The Gospel of John allows the disciples to be human beings and to go, what is happening? I thought we were celebrating the Passover. What's going on? But Jesus says this in response to John's question. Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And you can read as easily as I can that he dipped the morsel in the oil and he gave it to Judas. And notice how with Judas, in this whole passage, his full identity is always given. How do we know if we are calculated? If the seeds of betrayal that are part of Judas's heart, a coldness, a callousness, and a calculatedness is in us. If the phrase for coldness is I don't accept it, and the phrase for cal or callousness is I don't care, I think that the phrase for calculated is, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm not responding. Let 
We wouldn't know this because we don't lounge at our tables and we don't dip morsels into oil and pass them to you. We, <laughs> we're way too clean for that kind of thing, right? In context, it is a beautiful sign of kindness and affection. It's a sign of honor. It's most likely that Judas was at Jesus' left. The position of honor. And in this action of Christ, one commentator says that the gift of the morsel shows the complete lack of vindictiveness in Jesus toward Judas. Another commentator says this, that this final gesture of kindness from Christ to Judas precipitates Judas's final surrender to the power of darkness. What does Judas do with the morsel? We read that Jesus, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, and that after Judas, or it says that Judas had, you know, he took the morsel from Jesus. Judas came closer and closer to Christ in this story. The spotlight was closer and closer on Judas. And Judas had already calculated that it doesn't matter what Jesus does. Judas refused to be reconciled to Christ. Judas refer, you refused to repent. He refused Jesus' kindness. You go, Bradley, what, what did you expect Judas to do? I would have hoped that Judas would have said, I'm not taking it. No, I'm not taking it. Jesus, you're right. You're supposed to give it to me because I'm the one that in my heart had determined to betray you. I'm not taking it. Please, no, I repent. But rather, Judas, in his calculatedness, had already determined what he was going to do. And he said, it does not matter what you give me. I am going to do what I'm going to do. When in your life have you written someone off? You've said it's over. It's done. Nothing is going to change. What is the commands that cause you to stumble when you read the scriptures and you go, no. And we use that phrase, right? Come hell or high water, not doing that. Not going there. A calculatedness that says no matter what you do, I am not doing that. This anatomy of betrayal 
the coldness, the callousness, and the calculatedness of Judas is drawn out. And don't miss this. It's drawn out by the active love of Christ. Do you see that in this text? Do you see that in each movement, Jesus is drawing Judas out. He's drawing the truth out of Judas. Jesus, his life was not taken from him. It wasn't. Jesus willingly gave up his life. And even in his betrayal, his kindness drew the truth out of Judas's heart. And what you and I get to learn from this text is that those same seeds of betrayal are in us. And it's Jesus' drawing closer and closer to us that draws out our coldness, our callousness, and our calculatedness that keeps our backs against the wall, our mouths shut, and our hearts hardened. Mita and I got to do some pre-marriage counseling this weekend. It was a lot of fun. I had this great book, if you're interested in any of this, if you would like to read it, it, I would encourage any of you to read it. It's this secular book that says why marriages succeed or fail, written by this Jewish man. The wisdom's fantastic. He talks about what destroys relationship, and that's why it's applicable to any relationship. But he talks about this quartet of destruction, criticism and contempt, defensiveness and stonewalling. And the damage of refusal. Kind of the end game. The text leads us with the question of what do we do? You want to know which song I miss the most in Easter? You're going to go typical Presbyterian as soon as I tell you. Smitten, stricken, and afflicted. <laughs> You're like, what? That was the one you missed? It happens at the Good Friday service. I missed it. Listen to this verse. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. What do we do when we really take seriously the anatomy of betrayal? And we see in Judas the same seeds in our own hearts. What do we do when the verse ends like 30? And it was night. Are you afraid 
that the sun of your faith is setting in the darkness of your heart. You read verse 31 and 32. Listen to what Jesus said. Now, now, he says, is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus said of this act of Judas that he went out to do, now's the time. You whose heart has been exposed to see the glory of the Son of Man revealed. To see the glory of the cross. You guys, do you see this? These seeds of betrayal, of coldness and callousness and calculatedness in us, drawn out by the active love of Christ, who says, now you're ready to see the glory of the cross. The love of the Son for you. And not just my love for you, Father's love for you revealed. In light of your heart, he loves you that much. When Jesus says, if God is glorified, he doesn't mean maybe God's not going to be glorified in the cross. He means that if God is glorified in the cross, he is going to glorify the Son in himself. What is God doing? God is bringing the Son who has done his work into union with him and us with him. Us with those hearts just described. Was it necessary that Judas betray Jesus? I struggle with that this week, as many of you know. God is sovereign. He could have brought about, you know, the, 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 the reconciliation of lost humanity any way he wanted to. Was he constrained by our sin to act? The answer to that is no, he was not. Was it necessary? Was it expedient that this betrayal happened this way? Absolutely. And do you want to know why? Because it was fitting to demonstrate the depth of the love of the Father for you and me to expose the hearts of the ones he came to save. You and me. And you guys, it's that beauty that we stand in awe of and say, this is our God who loves us this way. Why do you need to know this? Why is this important? There is nothing that you discover about your heart that God didn't already know. Children, you have got to understand that if you hold on to that one day, it will set you free. Because you are going to commit the sin that you didn't think you were going to commit. And adults, all of you who are here who bear the scars of committing the sin that you didn't think you were going to commit, did you know that God already knew it? Did you know that? This story teaches that. You guys, the cross... In the resurrection means that the love of the Father generates on us the joy of being redeemed and the peace 
that finally says, be still. Be still in awe before your God who loves you like this. Jesus himself loves people like us whose hearts bear the seeds of betrayal. What do we do? Hey, Jesus taught us and we've almost going to do it. The Lord's Prayer says what? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Nathan said it last week, the juxtaposition of Judas and Peter, and and I'm almost of the opinion that, that Judas is the real point of this narrative. He's the beginning and the end of it. I mean, it's pretty wild that the juxtaposition is that of worldly grief that leads to death. We're not told when Judas hangs himself. We're not told if he hangs himself right after he betrays Jesus. But there's something to be said that that's probably the case, that Judas never saw Christ crucified, that, that even before he was crucified, Judas was already hanging in the tree because he realized his sin, but he didn't realize the hope that he had, that the God of the universe would die for his sin. But Peter did. And godly grief in Peter brought repentance that led to salvation. It led to life. Brothers and sisters, to study an anatomy of betrayal like this allows us to enter in to the depth of the beauty, not just of the love of God, but of the way he loved us. The way he did it. Because it is fitting He is that great. That's what we are coming to. And when we eat the morsel that Jesus gives us at the table, may it not be the calculated response of, I don't care what you give me. But may it be, Jesus, you found me out. Save me. Change me. Let's pray.